podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the senior media editor at Digital. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digital. Kaylee, it is that time of year, one of those times of years where we take a step back and reassess like what the hell has been going on in the media, advertising and technology industries. Yes, it's um I think a very good time to be doing this at the end of Q2 because Going into 2023, a big question that we were asking, you know, all of our sources was, how long do you think this kind of economic slowdown, this like period of, of turmoil is going to last? Like, when will the crystal ball kind of clear up? And a lot of people were saying by this point, they were hoping that the back half of the year would look pretty clear or that there would be this inflection point. And we're here, and I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Are you getting, like, punch drunk by all the, like, doom saying of the past, I mean, really the past year? It's hard to kind of think back to how long this has been lasting, because we are about at that year point where people started noting a very distinct change and shift. Um, I feel like time has flown, quite honestly, and it feels like it hasn't really gotten any better. Um yeah, it, it just it just feels like this kind of whirlwind period. And I'm sure a lot of the the people who read us are feeling the same way, maybe. Yeah, I think it was like, you know, March 2022, like around the time of the Digital Publishing Summit in Vail, where media executives started, you know, the talk was kind of bubbling up that, oh, things things are starting to look tough. You know, supply chain issues, I think, was the first one. And then it was interest rates going up, inflation, Russia, Ukraine war. Um, and then pretty quickly things got bad and they kind of got progressively worse. Second half of last year, layoffs started happening at, you know, media companies, tech companies, and then this year, more layoffs, more cost cutting. Like, I mean, that's been the big word around the industries that we cover have been the cost cutting, the budget cutting by advertisers, tech companies just laying off thousands of employees but it's almost there's a part of me that the past six months almost feel like anticlimactic like obviously things have been really dramatic and but i don't know whether i just like started feeling desensitized or like again punch drunk maybe is the the better term by all the bad news yeah i i guess i could see that and maybe it's because 2021 was such a busy year from like a large seismic shift standpoint in the media industry. There was a ton of mergers and acquisitions going on. There was a lot of, um, you know, very brazen moves on behalf of, you know, media execs to try and transform the industry and take advantage of that, like, you know, false spring, I think is the the term you had coined at the time. And it, it was just this, like, rapid year of change. And then it kind of seemed to, like, come to a halt. And then there were a lot of, like, you know make good kind of movements to recoup money lost in all of those changes, right? So I feel like it's, yeah, maybe the beginning of this year has been a little bit more hesitant on the part of of publishers, especially. I think it's a lot of like, you know, trying to just hold some ground down and figure out where things are and where things are going to net out. And it's been also very focused on what's happening in the moment, like very in quarter focused, very, you know, first half focused, just trying to get as much revenue dollars locked in as possible. And in a lot of cases, I feel like it limited 
future planning on the part of publishers. So it's, yeah, I'd say punch drunk in retrospect is probably a really good word for that. Yeah. And I I guess like one thing that also trips me up with it, and I think it's tripping up a lot of people is the fact that, you know, everyone talks about the worsening financial conditions, um, inflation, interest rates, the advertising, ad spending being down, all of that. But then there's still the, it's not contradictory, but there's a dissonance with unemployment numbers being pretty good um, and like consumer spending being pretty, I don't remember if it's like up or slightly down, but basically like consumer spending being relatively healthy is maybe the best way to put it. And so I feel like there's been a bunch, there was a, Lewis Carr from BT, um, he and I were talking, I think like two weeks ago, and he referenced, I forget who the CEO was of some company, but some CEO of a big company who had written an op-ed kind of, maybe it was Delta Airlines, kind of um, pointing out this dissonance where like so many you know people in business are talking about the economic downturn, but, and this is probably self-serving for Delta, but like they still see people spending on travel. And I think like anyone who's been in an airport at any point this year, like too many people are probably spending on travel just because God traveling sucks right now. And so, so maybe that's like another piece to it that I just haven't been able to wrap my head around or reconcile. I definitely think if you look like, if you break down the categories of advertising right now, like there are big shifts that have happened where like, the thing I hear from publishers is like advertisers are still spending if you're if you have a good relationship with them and if you're in kind of the right categories, right? So like the number of publishers who said that they're adding travel into their focus or their purview, their sales strategy is I would have to go back and like look at all of my uh, conversations, but I feel like the vast majority have referenced travel as a, a new category or one that's rapidly growing, and then. You know, tech and finance, I think, definitely slid back, especially during the layoff period and during the, you know, um, uh, you know, banking issues that were happening. Um, but there are some other categories like pharma that's doing pretty well, too. I mean, we see Penske launching a new uh, women's health brand to try and bring in some pharma dollars and, uh, you know, maybe offset some of the declines in the four-year consideration ad deals that they would normally get this time of year, um, thanks to the writer strike. And so you see these kind of like shifts where like, yes, people are still spending a ton of money in travel. Like I, my entire Instagram is full of people in Europe right now. So (laughs) there is like so much travel spend going on, but I think it's like, when you look at like the media companies, it, it, it seems like they're trying to shift gears to try and capture some of that spend on the advertisers part. Although if the category is doing really well, are they spending that much on advertising? Who knows? Like the people are going to be traveling regardless. Right. Yeah. And then also with the the advertising side of things, there's like kind of that question, similar to the question with inflation of like, are companies raising the, you know, raising their prices because the cost of goods and manufacturing have gone up or are they raising their prices because they see the inflation talk out there and like, okay, that's that gives me good cover mm-hmm. to raise my prices. With advertising, it's like, are advertisers cutting budgets because they need to cut budgets because they need that money so they don't have to lay off their employees? 
Or are they cutting budgets because they see an opportunity to pressure media companies, you know, whether it's TV network, streaming services, publishers, for to kind of lower their prices? And I mean, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Both can be true. But, you know, with um, this year's you know upfront cycle that we're in the middle of, it seems like that's very much at play where, you know, upfront budgets are coming in lower than they have in years past. But there's also been the talk for the past few years of advertisers and agencies coming out of the upfront negotiations feeling like they kind of got raked over the coals. Like um, Michael Berge, I don't remember if it was last year's upfront, Michael Berge, senior media uh, buying editor at Digiday. I don't remember if it was last year's upfront or the year before, but he had a piece coming out, out of the negotiations where buyers felt like they really lost the negotiation that like prices just went up too much. And so there has been a correction brewing similarly on like the streaming front with the streaming wars and the launches of Disney plus and HBO max and Paramount plus and Peacock and all these companies pouring money into original shows and movies to build up their streaming services. Now there's this correction where these companies are losing so much money on those streaming services that combined with a financial downturn um, or worsening financial conditions um, and a worsening traditional TV business, there's a correction going on on that side too. And now we're seeing with the writer's strike kind of happening and potentially by the time this episode goes up, Screen Actors Guild going on strike as well. Um, what kind of correction that's going to be. And I think it was even yesterday. So we're recording this on June 28th. I think it was June 27th where there was a group of actors, including like I think Meryl Streep, Jennifer Lawrence, um, who signed this letter basically encouraging the Screen Actors Guild to not take the easy deal because they see like this as being a pretty momentous opportunity to correct the economics of the business for screen actors in the same way that the writers see this as an opportunity to correct the economics of the business for them because the legacy economics just have evaporated because of streaming. Going back to what you were saying about upfronts, I am curious, like with the correction happening there and maybe like a, a decrease in budget allocation to upfront deals, like I think that's something that, you know, digital publishers have been talking about too, is like having a way like lesser ability to visualize what's coming down the pike in, you know, the coming year and committing a budget, a big, like, you know, ad budget this early on, not knowing how the rest of the year is going to shake out. Like, I guess, is that part of why um, maybe upfront budgets are are lower? It's just there's less visibility and like maybe less uh, ability to, to commit a large budget for a full year, you know, when you don't know what's happening, even just with the strikes and, and how that will shake out. Like, is it kind of a, have you picked up on it's like a safety net or just like a trying to take advantage of a shifting industry situation? Um, probably a little of both. Like, I think what it really is, is that obviously everyone has seen the traditional TV audience, you know, continues to erode. Um, it's probably like reaching kind of near the point of stasis in a way of, I think like a year or two ago, there was a report, um, 
or like a, a group of TV execs kind of came out and said, yeah, we think eventually it's going to settle down at like 50 million households in the US will be the pay TV subscriber base um, kind of moving forward. And so it's you know been declining towards that number and approaching that number. Um, so the upfront, the reason for advertisers to be spending it upfront, making these year long commitments in the upfront has been, well, TV, there's this huge audience, huge opportunity to reach people, but because TV networks, you know, show for the most part, the same ad to everyone who's watching a given show at a given period of time, there's that scarcity. And so advertisers had to buy in the upfront or felt like they had to commit in the upfront in order to reserve that inventory. Similar to like, if you know, you're going to be traveling during, you know, during the holidays, let's say you probably want to buy your plane ticket early because there's only so many flights, only so many seats to go around. Mm -hmm. But with TV viewership declining and TV prices going up, that creates the question of for the advertisers, well, is this actually money well spent? Um, for a lot of advertisers, it is because it's still TV is kind of arguably the best way to reach a bunch of people at the same time. The Super Bowl you know, shows this, and that's why Super Bowl ad prices go up every year. But on the streaming side of things, there's still that question of well, how many people can I actually reach on streaming? And also, like, I'm reaching these people not all at the same time. And so am I losing some of that benefit of kind of the hive mind of if everyone sees the same ad while watching the same thing, then maybe they're tweeting about it or there's you know some TikTok trend that gets inspired by it. But if I don't have that concurrent viewership, is there something that's lost there? And then there's also because of the targetability of streaming, do I need to pay a premium to be in Hulu or on the Netflix ads tier? Or am I better off just kind of going with the long tail of streaming services or doing a run of platform deal with a Roku or an Amazon Fire TV to reach those same people? It's, I mean, it's the digital publishing quandary of, do I need to advertise on the New York Times or can I reach the New York Times audience on some mom and pop blog? Yeah, because I think the the curiosity I had was whether or not there's just not enough budget approval. And I think it's different in digital publishing, like when you're looking at those budgets than with streaming or, uh, you know, TV. But with publishers, like the biggest thing I've heard this first half is just not being able to get most advertisers to think long term or think down the line and, you know, I think events has been one area that's come back pretty strongly for publishers and they've been able to get, um, you know, even more money than pre-pandemic on some of their, you know, experiential uh, activations or whatever, you know, fluffy words they want to use around that. But even with that, like some publishers are saying like it, events didn't net out to be as like lucrative as they maybe went into the year thinking they would be. And so they've had to uh, try and find ways to get advertisers locked in in quarter. Like there's been a lot of focus on in quarter and getting, uh, you know, budgets as soon as they're released, which happens to be so much shorter term. And with events, especially you can't really, 
I mean, some say they can, but it, it's really difficult to get, um, you know, a, an event up and running if it hasn't been sold yet in any way. So it's just, it's, I think with digital publishing, it's, it's more of like a, when are the budgets released and how do, how do I get my hands on it? Like as soon as possible, which has really diminished the ability to plan down the line. Yeah. And I think like, to your point, that is now becoming more the case with TV and streaming. Like I remember talking to buyers um, and even some TV network execs back in like March, April of this year. So in the like early upfront stage or the pre upfront stage. And what they were saying is like, the TV networks are saying, yeah, we're asking agencies for their budgets or their clients' budgets. And what we're hearing back is like, dude, it's April. Like, we're not going to have, like, those days are gone of us being able to kind of count the eggs, you know, before they hatch at this point. Um, and we saw this last year with the upfront where uh, in, you know, the June, July timeframe, advertisers or agency said, okay, we're going to commit to spend X millions of dollars with you TV network in the next year in the upfront budget. But that was just, so there's two stages to the upfront. There's the commitment stage. And then after those commitment or registration stage where agencies say, okay, we'll commit to X million of dollars with the TV networks. Well, then the agencies have to go to their clients and say, hey, so we've committed to spend X millions of dollars overall like how much of that are you individual client willing to commit to? Or like, is that cool? Can we, you know, and largely in the past, that would be fine. And it, the agencies would be able to cover that. Um, and even like kind of uh, bank some of that spending or that commitment for themselves and find clients throughout the year to actually make good on it. But what happened last year is a lot of clients said, Nah. Or a lot of clients said, okay, well, when we were having these conversations in May, June, July, yeah, we thought that's how much we were going to spend. But by the time August and early September came around, they're just like, no, things have gotten so much worse. We're not committing to spend that much. And so the upfront orders came in lower than the uh, initial commitments. Um, and that kind of speaks to this broader trend like you're talking about about advertisers just not being willing to, to commit as much because i mean a lot of this especially when it comes to the upfront or these long-term deals like event sponsorships these are bets that the advertisers are making and it just seems like there's less of a willingness among advertisers right now to make those bets or less confidence that whether it's tv network streaming services publishers are going to be able to deliver on those bets for the advertisers. That's a question I asked a lot of publishers and media execs. Like, do you think that this kind of buying behavior is going to persist and that's going to become uh, like a the new normal, right? Like not having months and months of, you know, visibility or, or being able to get advertisers to really commit to, um, you know, big franchise deals or events or, um, you know, just, you know, year long campaigns, like if they think that that period of time is kind of over and by and large, they were all very optimistic that the, this kind of buying behavior is not going to persist beyond this economic, um, downturn, slowdown, whatever we want to call it. But you and I were talking about this off the podcast. Like this has been kind of a very long stemming trend. Like it's not just 
starting fresh this year, this has kind of been going on for a while. There's been this very steady kind of stop and start buying behavior that's been going on. Um, and I don't know, in my opinion, there is a chance that the buyers will just kind of get used to spending like this and having the, all the flexibility in the world that they could want. Like, I think it's, you know, maybe a crutch that is developing. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where like people can say, oh, this is temporary. This is temporary. This is temporary. But then when they're saying that for multiple years, at some point it's no longer temporary. And I mean, we can get super philosophical and everything is temporary and nothing's permanent and all that. But like (laughs) when it comes to at least the business, that does feel like, Oh God, the new normal. I I hate myself for like bringing back that term, but kind of like it feels like the status quo and it just feels like it's, you know, becoming more the status quo across the broader industry where it's been the status quo for publishers. It's becoming the status quo for TV networks and for streaming services. And I mean, at the uh, Digital Publishing Summit this past March, in the working group on ad revenue, there were some publishers in there who were saying they're not putting, they at least at the time, they weren't putting together like big tentpole events and like kind of built if sold type deals because they were running into situations where advertisers were pulling out of deals last second and then the publisher was still on the hook f- for the costs of delivering you know if it was an event like they still have to put on the event because maybe they had attendees who paid tickets for it so the sponsorship money is not there but the publisher still has to kind of eat that and that also seemed like what a lot of the layoffs and cost cuttings have been about is kind of preemptive i think there have been probably too many situations where the you know companies laid off employees because money that the the companies counted on being there ended up not being there. But Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of other cases, companies did the cost cutting because they weren't sure if the money was going to be there. And so it was just the prudent thing to do at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Like the new normal, whatever the, you know, unprecedented times, this yeah, whole thing. We could thing, come up like, with something else, some other like terms than what we used during the art of the pandemic. Right. Like I think, I think in this case, the buyers have gotten so accustomed to the media entities bending over backwards to try and win any ad dollars that exist because it's been so competitive and it's gotten, um, I mean, like there's just so many publishers, there are so many streaming services, there's so much content that is monetizable through ads that you not only have to have these great relationships with buyers and advertisers in general, but you also like have to be willing to give in when there's any kind of pushback. Like that's the predominant thing I also hear is like flexibility is still like the most important thing. And it just seems like like so impractical to continue operating this way. Like how do you have a sales team who's, you know, typically selling in the next quarter? Like I think this was in Q4. I talked to many publishers who said that by November at least, but I think more so October, they were already focused on the first quarter. Like they had 
dropped Q4. Q4 was sold out and they were focusing on the next year. And this past Q4, that did not happen. People were still very much focused on getting last minute programmatic deals, especially, but like really just like selling the quarter. And that's been happening each and every quarter since then. And like, it just seems very unsustainable, I feel like, because that's just so much pressure to complete campaigns on a very short timeline, especially if you're looking at custom content. That said, I do feel like custom content and uh, some of those more creative campaigns are not as popular right now. It seems to be more focused on, um, I don't know, social and, and like programmatic. All this to say, it doesn't seem very sustainable for the media industry to keep keep operating like this. Um, but if it has been going on for years and maybe teams have gotten used to that cadence of work, yeah, maybe that is just what's going to happen going forward, at least from our perspective. But again, the media execs seem very confident in the fact that it will not persist. Yeah, it, it, it becomes one of those, like, I'd probably be in that situation too of like, let me exude all the confidence if only so that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, especially <laughs> like in contrast to the doomsaying. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Or maybe saying it loud enough will get people to believe it. Right. But because yeah. like then this all juxtaposes with the AI conversation and like at the same time as you have companies like, you know, BuzzFeed shut down, you know, BuzzFeed News has had layoffs, but then is also touting what it's doing with generative AI and using, you know, GPT-4 to create quizzes. And like, I mean, I think the generative AI stuff is really interesting. We'll have the next episode of this podcast with Rafi uh, Krikorian, who is the CTO of Emerson Collective former CTO of the Democratic National Party. And he and I talk, like we go pretty deep into AI and regulation of AI. I think there's a lot there to it, but, and so I, I think like the AI opportunity is real, but it also becomes one of those, oh, this is the latest shiny new toy for media companies. This is the pivot to video, um, but now it's the pivot to AI. Yeah. And for media companies who are struggling, those shiny new toys are really good at getting um, investors excited and, and shareholders excited. And I, it does, I think, eliminate a lot of um, like operational overhead if used effectively, um, or it replaces a lot of operational overhead if you get rid of you know, journalist roles who were once doing some of these content things. I, I think it can help with some cost cutting, but there is a lot of investment that goes into it up front. And even then, like one, I think you're dead on, like there is investment that goes into it, not only up front, but also depending on, like, I'd be really curious to know how much BuzzFeed is having to pay per query when it comes to these quizzes, because and if those quizzes become successful, like how profitable does that actually end up being? Because then it becomes contingent on enough ad revenue coming in against those quizzes or through sponsored quizzes that I know they've been selling to offset whatever the um, like the SaaS fees are just because I believe OpenAI, the API for G GPT-4 is set up on a like per query basis. And so... 
And the more queries you send in, like you end up getting like qualifying for enterprise tiers and all of that. But there is a cost associated with every time, you know, they're running these quizzes, depending on how the quizzes are set up on the back end. Um, but then it's, there's also just the, the cost of you need still people to be using these tools and supervising these tools. And so, yes, you can save money by enlisting ChatGPT to handle stuff, but there's been plenty of examples of how ChatGPT can go very wrong. Um, and so you need to be fact-checking, you know, ChatGPT. And that, you know, I've, I don't know if it was, I think it may have been like Casey Newton in Platformer who wrote about this recently, maybe even like this week's, one of this week's articles. Um, but about how the time that it takes to fact-check ChatGPT and kind of raising the question of like, at what point do you become better off just not using ChatGPT for the thing if you're going to have to like go through and check every single assertion made by this AI software? Yeah, I guess that in when generative AI was first coming out, especially like ChatGPT was being talked about in earnest amongst a lot of media companies. I had this kind of like curiosity of is this going to be the next like blockchain experimentation or metaverse kind of push that a lot of publishers were talking about um you know during again that like false spring period um and yeah i mean if generative ai doesn't have the like functions and it's hard to use and it's hard to like make it a, a seamless kind of process in operations and kind of these streamlining efforts, like, yeah, maybe it does just at the end of the day become a, a fun toy that, you know, ultimately people will get bored of. Like, it, it'll be interesting to follow in the next, you know, six months, year or so, like how far generative AI can come in a media company in producing and helping to produce content while also, I guess, appealing to ad dollars slash not being so expensive to operate in the first place. Like it, it'll be interesting to follow that trajectory, not to mention how it affects other things like misinformation and, you know, other very scary things that um, I've already seen circulating online. But all this to say, I think it's a very new area that I think very focused on trying to drive in investment dollars and mm. things of that nature. You know, I think Sarah Baglioni, our uh, senior media reporter, uh, wrote about this after the Q1 earnings calls, if I'm not, not mistaken. But kind of the companies that brought up AI during those earnings calls and like just how common that was. And um, reading through that, I, I couldn't help but think like, yeah, that's if the rest of your earnings, if you have to talk about the earnings report and the quarterly earnings report looks pretty poor because of the economic conditions as we've been talking about throughout this conversation, of course, I'd rather talk about AI. I'd be like, no, don't, don't look at our numbers. Please don't look at our numbers. Look at what we're doing with AI. We're going to do AI stuff, AI, mm -hmm. just it's, it's going to be AI. It's going to be AI without having to necessarily get into what that means at the end of the yeah. day. And I think that's where a lot of my interest is right now is in, 
the concrete uses of AI to what extent companies are actually using AI and then what goes into that use. Like uh, a few weeks ago, I was talking to a bunch of video producers and VFX specialists about how they've been incorporating, whether it's you know ChatGPT or MidJourney, Stable Diffusion, um, DID, and some other tools into their workflows. And they are, and it's really interesting stuff. But you know, what I came away thinking about is like, yeah, this is just another tool for humans to use for now. And sure, at some point, there will probably be general artificial intelligence and we're going to have either like really concerning conversations at that point or like it'll this conversation will just be conducted by ChatGPT using 11 labs to you know dub its own voice um, and will be out of the picture entirely. But at the moment, like, you need prompt engineers. Like that's probably one of the biggest, you know, opportunities in terms of jobs at the moment um, when it comes to at least creative organizations is people who know how to write prompts to get the most effective results out of whether it's ChatGPT, Midjourney, Runway, which is now doing text to video. Um, so that, and that's not so different from knowing how to write an article or knowing how to use a camera, things of that nature. Can just happened last week. And even on the advertising side, apparently I was not at Can myself, but in the reporting of like what's happened pre Can, check out my media briefing from last week. Um, a lot of publishers were saying a big topic of conversation with marketers was around AI and how that can be applied to, um, you know, possible future campaigns. And so it's, it is, I think, generating a lot of interest from like the investment side, from like the shareholder side, but like marketers are also interested in it. And I think, you know, we saw that happen again with like web three and, and all that, um, you know, fun stuff, but it, it does have this, you know, ripple effect of like, you know, generating interest and for a media company who's um struggling yeah i can understand why they're very much focused on ai in earnings calls and you know anytime they're talking to their possible customers and, and clients and shareholders because yeah i mean you got to get money in and if that's where you got to lean in i guess it i guess it makes sense although what's interesting short-term perspective yeah what's interesting about that is like there definitely seems like there could be a revenue opportunity for publishers of like, hey, I have this new AI product or this thing that we've been selling you in the past. Now we've baked AI into it and it's so much better, whatever the hell it is. But then there's the other side of it from the advertisers of does that create an opportunity for them to pressure publishers to lower costs because if it's oh if you're throwing ai at the thing then that means you're saving you publisher are saving money because you don't have to have as many human employees working on this and whether that is or is not true and, and maybe this is just kind of how sick my mind is <laughs> these days but like i could see that being something that advertisers press on as a way to potentially save money or to ensure that the money they're spending is being used efficiently that that you know money is necessary and i think when um i think it was the association of national advertisers it may have been the week of can when this came out but had some sort of statement that went out where it was basically advertisers demanding that 
media companies and others, um, and maybe even agencies as well, but be transparent when they're using AI for campaigns. Um, and I think that's smart. And I think there's a lot of valid reasons for that. For example, if you're using AI to write the copy for a campaign, if you're using ChatGPT to write the copy for a campaign, I, as an advertiser, would want to know that because then I would want my team to double check that copy just to make sure there are no errors. Similarly, if you're using MidJourney for images for a campaign, I want to make sure those images, you know, while they're produced by AI, don't potentially violate any copyright or look so similar to an artist's original work that I'm going to get flamed for it online mm -hmm. as a kind of appropriation without credit, let alone compensation. But I also look at it as just like, as an advertiser would want to know if you're using AI, because maybe I'm not willing to pay as much if this is all generated by AI. And maybe I'm also thinking, maybe I'm also using that as an opportunity to like, oh, so this publisher is able to do this with AI? Interesting. So maybe I should just have my team learn how to do the same thing and then I don't have to pay the publisher for it. Yeah, I think we're at that really interesting inflection point where this technology exists. No one quite knows how to use it in the most efficient and cost-saving manner. Um, but once there are practical applications of it, like it, I think it you know, could really impact how these companies work, how the ad industry, if we're just like narrowing it down to that, um, functions or like how deals are conducted at this point. Like, it, I think there is a very interesting, um, you know, trajectory to keep our eyes on. And, um, you know, like you said, Sarah Guaglioni has been doing a really great job of reporting around that, um, from like a publisher standpoint and, and Marty Swant has been covering it from like the marketing standpoint. And I think like there's this very, yeah, I, I think it really could, impact how these parties work with each other um and you know the agency side too not just the brands yeah yeah so i guess we'll have to see like to what extent the how the ai conversation progresses in the second half of this year especially depending on how the ad business progresses or degresses in the back half of this yeah. year yeah and how regulations sit on top of all that too so yeah it'll be interesting which, to follow I got to do some sort of story or video like on the regulation side. Cause after talking with Rafi, it just feels not entirely impossible to regulate AI, but pretty impossible to regulate it close to impossible to regulate it effectively. If only because like regulation of social media hasn't come to pass yet. So what hope is there for regulation of AI, but maybe it's different because social media, like now you're regulating people's behaviors, whereas AI, you're regulating um, actual technology. And so maybe that, because of the binary nature of that technology, maybe becomes easier, but then I can go down the rabbit hole of like, yeah, but we're talking about regulating how people use or abuse AI. I don't know, that, too many thoughts, none of them organized enough on that point. Yeah, we are at a interesting point, and my only hope is that it doesn't end up in an ex machina type future here. But regardless, I am excited to see how um, this technology, I guess, impacts the industry in the next year or so, or 
timidly excited. I don't know. I don't know how I, how I feel about it entirely. Yeah. My one piece of optimism that I kind of cling to with all of this is, okay, well, AI runs on computer servers. Computer servers need cool environments in order to run. Like with, you know, if you try to run a computer in a hot environment, it's going to overheat and then fry. And so climate change is <laughs> a threat to AI in the same way that it is to humanity. So if we can teach ChatGPT about climate change and kind of the threat there, then when general artificial intelligence comes to pass, maybe the AIs will be even more incentivized than humans uh, seem to be to address the climate change issue. That's, All right. that's how I sleep at night. That was Tim's Conspiracy Corner yeah. segment of the show. <laughs> but that does give me some reassurance as well. Okay. Um, all right. Maybe let's <laughs> let's wrap up this. <laughs> Thanks, Tim, for chatting with me about, you know, Q2. And, well, I, this was much more broad than Q2, yeah, I would say. But a good kind of, like, yeah. halfway point check-in for how the industry is going this year. Um, yeah. Thanks for chatting. Absolutely. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, everyone, for listening this far. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. We'll be back next week with another episode.